most of the top 10 disorders that are responsible for deaths today, such as you know cancer and cardiovascular disease and stroke, which result from metabolic syndrome in no small part. So it's all about, uh, I guess if you summed up the approach uh, in a nutshell, it's about improving the health of the mitochondria. Ketones provide a more efficient fuel. Um, Dr. Veach used to call them a super fuel. Dr. David Perlmutter, welcome to The Empowering Neurologist. You know, we have close to 6 million Alzheimer's patients here in America, and there is no real treatment, at least in terms of anything pharmaceutical that we have to offer them. And the question is then, well, what can we do? And one of the things that we've talked about so much on this program has been something called the ketogenic diet. And why might that be something we would be interested in, for example, as it relates to actual intervention uh, in dealing with Alzheimer's disease. Well, we know that there is a primary defect in the brain in Alzheimer's called a bioenergetic defect, whereby the brain cells are not able to utilize glucose uh, as a fuel. And the idea of providing these brain cells with an alternative fuel source, in other words, ketones, has been attractive because it may allow brain cells that are functional but not functioning to really come back online. And the first study that uh, has come out was performed by Dr. Matthew Phillips. We've actually had him on the program before, where he described great success in dealing with Parkinson's by using a ketogenic diet. And he's going to join us today to talk about the use of the ketogenic diet as an intervention in Alzheimer's disease. Let me tell you a little bit more. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Phillips. Matt is a full-time clinical and research neurologist at Waikato Hospital in Hamilton, New Zealand. His foremost passion is to explore the potential feasibility, safety, and efficacy of metabolic therapies, particularly fasting and ketogenic diet in creating alternate metabolic states that may improve not only the symptoms, but also function and quality of life for people with a variety of difficult disorders. And that includes things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. So I'm very excited to have him back on the program. Let's jump right in. Matt Phillips, Dr. Phillips, how are you doing? I'm good, Dave. Good to see you. It's great to have you back on the program. Uh, many of our viewers will remember you from the time we spent together talking about the use of a ketogenic diet in Parkinson's. That was a, a great uh, interview that we had. And I'll just say that since then, uh, you and I were invited to write a book chapter on that exact topic, and we look forward to seeing that coming out of uh, South Africa, wasn't it? Yeah, Tim Noakes' uh, group. Yeah, can't wait. Well, you've done it again, haven't you? You've done an interventional trial called Randomized Crossover Trial on a modified of a Modified Ketogenic Diet in Alzheimer's Disease. So... Basically, what you did is you wanted to see if uh, getting ketones elevated in Alzheimer's patients uh, might be helpful. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the article, uh, maybe you could give us an overview as to why you did this and why you thought it might be helpful. What's going on in the brain in these patients that a ketogenic diet might have proven helpful? Okay. Well, I guess uh, the premise that we took with Alzheimer's was that it's fundamentally a metabolic disease of the brain, <clears throat> specifically 
impaired brain energy metabolism, which just means that the neurons, the cells, are struggling to have an, uh, produce enough energy to survive and do the things they need to do. And so uh, there's quite a lot of work uh, in that area, and it's increasing by uh, you know on a yearly basis. And it just suggests that maybe the major problems with Alzheimer's are not the protein depositions, the tau and amyloid and so on, but maybe the major problem is that they're running out of energy. If you look at them, neurons in Alzheimer's uh, probably use about, they have about a 20 to 40% deficiency in their glucose metabolism, which is the main fuel most people use on a daily basis to fuel their cells. And another thing is that the neurons in Alzheimer's are insulin uh, resistant, so you can't get the fuel into the neurons very well. And also at the same time, there's a lot less insulin in the brain, 80 to 90% shortfall. And so this is what's led people to call Alzheimer's disease uh, type 3 diabetes because it has features of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But perhaps at the core of the whole thing is that the mitochondria in these Alzheimer's neurons are really damaged. They don't have uh, their enzymatic machinery. Uh, what they need to produce energy is not at optimal function. And there are fewer of these mitochondria and they're all kinds of funny shapes. So really you've got, uh, our view with this uh, disorder was that you've got metabolism problems at the level of uh, the organs and systematically and also at the levels of the cell and at the level of the mitochondria. And so that's a complicated disorder. Maybe instead of a medication, you want to use a complicated therapy such as the ketogenic diet. Well, let's, you know, there are multiple things I think that we could uh, unpack here as it relates to ketogenic diet. Let's start with mitochondria. And uh, we recognize that this notion of uh, mitophagy or getting rid of defective uh, mitochondria and mitochondrial biogenesis, the growth of new mitochondria, uh, is something that seems to be enhanced in the presence of ketones. So right off the bat, it looks like if Alzheimer's is an acquired mitochondropathy, who knew, uh, that uh, that might be one of the ways by which the ketones seem to be helping. Absolutely. I mean, we know the mitochondria are damaged in Alzheimer's, and they're damaged in uh, most of the top 10 disorders that are responsible for deaths today, such as, you know, cancer and cardiovascular disease and stroke, which result from metabolic syndrome in no small part. So, it's all about, uh, I guess if you summed up the approach uh, in a nutshell, it's about improving the health of the mitochondria. Ketones provide a more efficient fuel. Um, Dr. Veach used to call them a super fuel because they produce more energy per unit of oxygen and at the same time fewer free radicals compared to glucose. And so I guess if you had your choice between the fuels to fuel your neurons, you probably would want to go ketones, uh, all, other things, all other things being equal. I need to stop you right there because you said something that I think is really important. You said the top 10 uh, causes of chronic degenerative disease or death on the planet are related to mitochondrial dysfunction. And uh, we can, let's say, take that a little bit further because when we're talking about this mitochondrial dysfunction, there's a lot going on in terms of lifestyle choices that can pave the way for our mitochondrial to become dysfunctional. We don't give them a chance to regenerate. We don't give ourselves the chance to rid ourselves of defective mitochondria. Therefore, those mitochondria that are not working appropriately tend to reproduce. 
And a lot of this uh, really relates to this interplay between inflammation, uh, free radical mediated stress, and mitochondrial damage, uh, such that ultimately there is, in the case of Alzheimer's, there is neuronal dropout. We enhance apoptosis pre-programmed cell death uh, through these connections, through these dots that we've connected via our metabolic challenges, our metabolic uh, dysfunctional lifestyle choices that play out in terms of metabolic disease, insulin resistance. And ultimately, um, what you've just said, I think, really opens the door for us to gain a broader understanding of the major causes of death on planet Earth right now. And it's not COVID. It's still the chronic degenerative read lifestyle-related diseases, which you made very clear, uh, have at their very core dysfunction of the mitochondria, leading then to increased free radical mediated stress, cell death, DNA damage, protein damage, fat damage, and, and ultimately, you know, our, our decline. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm happy to do a little tangent for five minutes on it. We can tangent away. Okay. So, yeah, if you look 200 years ago at the top 10 causes of death, uh, in the States, for example, they were almost entirely infectious. And, and uh, this was in the setting of, uh, you know, uh, this sort of Pasteur versus Bichamp debate where Louis Pasteur was, was a proponent of vaccinations and attacking extrinsic pathogens to, cure, to treat disease, whereas um, Bichamp, was, who's not as well known, was uh, a medical doctor who, who advocated um, this concept of restoring the terrain of the body, which you could broadly equate to health, and that he thought that was better. Anyways, Pasteur won the, the debate for many reasons. And over the last 200 years, the medical model has gone along the lines of the Pasteur approach, and it's, it's gone outside of infections. We try to treat all of the disorders we see uh, it, it, by treating them as a sort of uh, uh, extrinsic, uh, almost as an extrinsic uh, target by treating them with medications. However, if you look at the top 10 disorders today, uh, so number one is cardiovascular disease, and depending on the country, it might be cancer. So cancer and cardiovascular disease and stroke is not far behind, and Alzheimer's is right up there. You know, if you, if you look at uh, type 2 diabetes, of course, metabolic syndrome at the root of all of these diseases, probably, and they all relate to our lifestyle choices and the uh, huge uh, tsunami-like impact of... Uh, eating probably a little too much and also uh, not getting the fat to carbohydrate ratio right. And in, on top of that, a lot of processed carbohydrates, but also some processed fats. And uh, in my opinion, one of the huge things, as you just alluded to, is uh, too many meals throughout the day and plus or minus snacks. And so that keeps your body always in growth mode. You never let your, mito your body and your mitochondria rest and fast. And that's the key here. You need to do that because when the body goes into a fasted state, it regenerates, it repairs, and it, it improves the sort of efficiency and survival-like mechanisms of the cells, including mitochondria function. That's where they get a breather from the onslaught of nutrients, and they're allowed to sort of make themselves more efficient. And we've lost that in our current lifestyle. And so this trial, this Alzheimer's trial, is just a tiny drop in the ocean and, and you know and that ocean is creating a tsunami of metabolic disease which is quite frightening actually because it's coming and you can see it in the top 10 and it's not getting any smaller 40 percent of uh, the united states is in the obese category uh, 13 percent have type 2 diabetes another 28 percent or so have prediabetes and so this is a real uh, concern and this trial is just one tiny 
thing that's, uh, you know, I'm, we're trying to show that maybe if these other strategies can, can improve these metabolic disorders, not just Alzheimer's, but also cancer and the metabolic syndrome and so on, then maybe the, the medical model can change and meet this problem, because right now it's not going to meet the problem. Well, uh, you know, it, so it is a small study, and you, you demonstrated just for our viewers that uh, patients demonstrated in, in certain parameters improvement, uh, Alzheimer's patients improving, who knew, uh, on the ketogenic diet. We'll come back to that, but I'm fine to uh, extrapolate because I love where we're going right now. And as it relates, for example, to COVID, who's having the worst outcome with COVID? These are people who are having energetic issues who have metabolic problems who have mitochondrial dysfunction as you just said and this affects their immune function as well we induce senescence and compromised function of our energy dependent immune cells lower levels of nag nad utilization for example in immune cells uh, correlates with severity of uh, outcome uh, with respect to, or it's been hypothesized with respect to covid so in a very real sense, the, the very same mechanisms are at play that relate to the development of the very diseases you mentioned that are at play as it relates to bad outcome with respect to COVID infection. So, um, gosh, we, we sure generalized awful quickly from, from your study. I want to get back to it. But I think what we're looking at here is this environmental evolutionary mismatch uh, whereby we are not engaging our bodies in the time of, as you say, rebuilding, and we're constantly uh, in growth phase. And as such, because we're always in growth phase, phase, we don't allow autophagy to happen. We don't allow mitochondrial biogenesis to happen, mitophagy, getting rid of defective mitochondria. And we're constantly simply building tissues and not allowing repair uh, to take place and getting rid of, of cellular components and even cells. Uh, that are defective. And, you know, certainly there's a time in life, early in life, when growth is important. But for those of us who are about as tall as we're going to get and, uh, you know, reach the stage where we don't need to keep growing, uh, we might be fanning the flames of abnormal growth vis-a-vis -vis cancer in our bodies by constantly suppressing autophagy and enhancing growth, having higher levels of uh, IGF-1, for example, at the cost of not having enough autophagy. So, our lifestyle choices are extremely important. When we eat, how much we eat, how often we eat, uh, how much exercise do we get or we don't get? What is the role of uh, restorative sleep as it relates to autophagy? I mean, these are important questions. And we're not off topic as it relates to your study by any means. We're talking about um, something that is induced by caloric restriction, for example, uh, which is ketosis. And that is a time that allows the body to take a step back and say, hey, we've got defective mitochondria, in this case, in the brain. We're going to repair those. These ketones act as uh, gene expression modulators, epigenetic modulators, uh, helping reduce this fundamental mechanism of inflammation, helping actually as well to restore insulin sensitivity and thereby allow those neurons then to be able to finally utilize uh, glucose indirectly uh, through the enhanced metabolism of the astrocytes yet again. So, um, you know, this is one small window that you've brought to us, but it's extremely valuable because it, it sure as heck proves a point 
uh, as you confront a disease for which there is no accepted medical treatment as you and I have this conversation. And I, I think I'm a little animated right now, but that's good. I, I love good where to see you it. that it, it's really exciting. Yeah, there's definitely a bigger picture here, as you've uh, stated. Um, I guess, you know, what the way uh, just briefly touch, I don't want to talk too much about COVID, but, you know, trying to teach, uh, treat it with vaccination strategies, that's a very Pasteur-like approach, and um, that can have short-term success. But in the long term, what the, the um, you know, the success, I guess, if you will, of, of COVID infiltrating uh, the majority of countries in the world and doing the damage it's done indicates to me on a deeper level that, uh, and people with metabolic syndrome are very susceptible to it, as you said, that perhaps we really need to think of the long term here, and that's about restoring health to, so that, you know, you're healthy and so that a virus like COVID really won't have uh, much of an impact on the body. And I think where we went wrong uh, 200 years ago is Bichamp never defined what he meant by health. He said things like get exercise, get sunlight, and that's fine. But uh, it's really, you need a precise definition. If we're going to bring this into the medical system and the medical system can do the most good because people listen to their doctors. And if, if doctors had a definition of health, a target to aim for, maybe we could start convincing more of them uh, to actually utilize these strategies, prescribe fasting uh, protocols, prescribe ketogenic diet protocols, and, and so on. There's more metabolic strategies, as you know, Dave. So uh, what we need is a target. And to me, the target um, is impaired energy metabolism, not just the brain. Brain is Alzheimer's, uh, but other disorders such as cancer. There's impaired energy metabolism and the metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. There's impaired energy metabolism, and that ties it all together. And at the heart of that probably is mitochondria health. So if we actually focused when we saw patients on, okay, this patient has some symptoms. I can use medications to treat these symptoms. We're very not anti-medication. I use them every day. However, now I've done that. Now I want to try and actually heal the disease. I don't want to just treat the symptoms of the disease. I want to heal it. That's the key. And that's why I went into medicine. And sometime in medical school, I realized that's not what doctors did, which was a huge shame to me. And that's what's led me down this path. But, you know, now we can actually, I think these, these metabolic strategies, we have an opportunity to actually start healing people. We know it can happen in type 2 diabetes. That disorder is reversible. Can we do this to an extent in Alzheimer's, which represents an end point? It's a much tougher disorder, right? It's an end point uh, of, of a long history of metabolic disease. Uh, as is cancer, probably. Can we actually impact those disorders? My gosh, if we could actually start not just masking the symptoms, giving people a couple months of life in cancer, or masking the symptoms of Alzheimer's with our standard treatments, but also healing the disease as a at a fundamental level, even a little bit, that's so exciting. And so that's, that's why this trial, um, you know, despite all the work involved in conduct a small study, but a lot of work, that's why um, we pushed through to uh, see it to the end. And, and I guess the results are, are uh, well, they're worth talking about, I suppose. Yeah, let's, we'll talk about it one minute because I've, I've had several thoughts. And first, I I'm sure had you did. a conversation yesterday with a Dr. Stephen Gundry, who has a new book coming out. Uh, called, actually, just came out called The Energy Paradox. And he, interestingly, in the book uh, early on, I think chapter three, is talking about the Hadza in Africa. And if you measure their energy expenditure in comparison to a typical person who does office work, the energy expenditure of these uh, hunter-gatherers is the same raise the eyebrows and you know it's surprising and his contention is that 
office workers and you know people living in you know our modern cities are using a lot of their energy uh, via inflammation you know the fact that infl inflammation is running rampant in our bodies is consuming a lot of uh, a lot of energy at the level of our immune cells so you know it speaks then to the fact that when uh, we are depriving uh, our immune cells of having enough energy uh, meaning having things like obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, etc., that then uh, there are, our immune systems are less functional, and that might interestingly have a correlation to an opportunistic infection, which is COVID, in my opinion. Now, generally, we use the term opportunistic infection. Uh, you know, I think it really got traction during uh, early on in, in AIDS with HIV, allowing uh, infections like TB, pneumocystis carinii to, to flourish because the immune system was traumatized. And I think the opportunistic part of COVID is it's, it's taking advantage of the immune system being compromised by these chronic degenerative conditions that, uh, you know, the people with type 2 diabetes and obesity and hypertension and coronary artery disease have are immunocompromised individuals. Their immune function is not where it needs to be, such that they're chronically inflamed. We know how these relationships exist then between C-reactive protein and risk for these diseases, and certainly correlations are seen with levels of this inflammation marker, CRP, and the degree of involvement with these various uh, disease states. So, uh, you know, it, it's very interesting because uh, from your perspective, here's how you can fix it. Here's how you can target that exact problem, in this case, in Alzheimer's disease, by recognizing where the problem is and dealing with the fire, not just addressing the smoke. So. Let's do this, if we can, Matt. Let's do the nuts and bolts, uh, take the study apart, and tell us what you did and what you found. Okay. So uh, this was a study involving 26 people with uh, diagnosed uh, Alzheimer's disease, according to the best criteria we have. And, and what we did is uh, we did a randomized crossover trial, which is a, quite a powerful kind of experimental design where you take, you randomize uh, half the people, so 13 people to one uh, intervention, such as the modified ketogenic diet that we designed for people with Alzheimer's. And then you randomize the other 13 to a control intervention, uh, which is basically uh, a control is, is something that you wouldn't expect to see a change. So in this case, we use their usual diet but we, we gave them the standard of care, what people would normally get. So uh, advice uh, to lower the fat in their diet. Uh, and, you know, we gave them optional recipes for that. And also copies of the New Zealand Healthy Eating Guidelines and, and went through them with them. So uh, we randomized half to the ketogenic diet and half to the usual diet with the recommendations and so on. And followed them for 12 weeks. And we measured their Alzheimer's on a number of levels. We, of course, measured cognition. Uh, because Alzheimer's affects cognition. But if you look at uh, the two things that matter the most to people living with dementia, they are actually not cognition. It is function and quality of life. And so we decided to make all three of those measurements our primary outcomes. The primary outcome as a child is the thing you're most interested in seeing if it changes or not. We also measured a number of secondary outcomes related to their metabolism, uh, such as uh, diabetes markers, cholesterol profile, and so on. 
And then after the, uh, we measured them at the beginning and at six weeks and at 12 weeks. And then what we did is we did a washout for, where for eight, uh, 10 weeks, we asked everyone to go back to their pre-trial diet, everyone. And the whole idea of a washout period in a randomized crossover design is to remove all the effects of the previous 12 weeks and, and equilibrate everyone, put them back to where they were before. Now, that's quite difficult because some of these people, uh, <laughs> you could see it, they, and they knew they'd improved on the keto diet intervention, obviously. You, know, you try to not be biased here as well, but you know, when it's obvious, you could see it, and they know it too. So uh, nonetheless, the patients uh, were very good at reverting to their pre-trial uh, diet you know, uh, we tried to emphasize this is for the greater good. You know, it's not just about uh, these 26 people and us. It's about the world. And people are really good, actually. When, when you put it, when you frame it in that context, people will do amazing things to, uh, you know, for the greater good. So anyways, uh, we did a 10-week washout, and then we flipped. So everyone that was on the usual diet, they went on the ketogenic diet. And everyone that was on the ketogenic diet went on the usual diet with low-fat, healthy eating guidelines and so on. And another 12 weeks. And then at the end of that, we, um, what you have is a very powerful design where uh, each patient is their own control because everyone's done both uh, interventions. It's, it's a powerful design. You just have to make sure you do it correctly. It's, it's really tricky. You got to get the washout right. And, and there's a couple other things you have to do as well. But um, I think we did it as best we could. And uh, at the end of the, the whole thing, uh, there was a a trend towards improved cognition. It was not statistically significant, uh, but I think there may have been one or two reasons for that. This was right in the middle of a, of a level four lockdown, the most severe lockdown New Zealand had. Uh, there was four weeks of that in the last uh, five weeks of the trial. And uh, what you've done is, is uh, introduce uh, two lifestyle changes. One is a lockdown and two is a ketogenic diet. And a lot of people got really anxious with the lockdown and so on. So anyways, uh, I guess the more important findings was that function statistically uh, improved and it was clinically significant. If you look, uh, what that means is that um, someone can have an improvement statistically in uh, a measurement such as function, but it, you know, if it's small, if it's really small and not clinically significant, who cares? And that's one drawback of huge trials with hundreds of patients is they can detect statistically significant improvements, but it doesn't matter to the patient. Uh, sometimes it doesn't matter. Whereas in this, it was clinically significant. It was, it was beyond what you would, uh, it was well in that, at that range. And just as importantly, quality of life improved to a statistically and clinically significant uh, level. And that was quite exciting because those two things, medications really are not very good at that. And this was only 12 weeks, mind you. It's only three months. And that was uh, basically it. And uh, their cholesterol profile improved and so on as well. We can talk about that later as well. What do you mean quality of life? Okay, so with each of these things, you, you, uh, you want to use a validated uh, instrument, uh, a like a questionnaire or uh, assessment that uh, measures cognition, function, or quality of life. And so for quality of life, we used a measurement that's been shown to have very good test, retest reliability, which means people uh, who use it, uh, you know, there's not much variation when, when it's retested again. And even if you change the raters, although we use the same raters for every every part of the study here to get rid of that. Um, and we used one called the Quality of Life in Alzheimer's Disease Questionnaire, and that just consisted of a, a rater in a room blinded to whatever intervention 
the patient was on asking questions about quality of life and uh, documenting it every time. And it's quite a lot of time and effort, but at the end of the day, that's, that's what we, we did. And the quality of life things they measure would be basic things like um, uh, your ability to do tasks, your marital uh, and other relationship qualities, uh, how, how good they are. Um, how satisfied you are with life. You know, it was, it's quite a good questionnaire and really gives you a, 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 a microcosm into that person's life as to, as to how much they're actually enjoying their life. Yeah, and I think with people so-called languishing these days, it'd be an interesting measurement for the population at large. That said, let's take a look at this first graph. And what we're seeing here is it is a measurement of quality of life, uh, Alzheimer's disease, a scale, a comparing ketogenic diet, usual diet. Maybe you could walk us through what we're looking at. Okay, I can't see the graph, but uh, if it's the one in the paper with quality of life, um, basically uh, you've got the measurements at baseline uh, week six and week 12, I presume up there. That's and right. uh, so what it shows is that after, uh, you know, week six weeks of both interventions, there wasn't a huge change. I think the ketogenic diet edged ahead a little bit, but there was a big improvement in quality of life relative to the control diet by 12 weeks. And um, that's not surprising that there was a little change in the first six weeks, because with these metabolic strategies, ketogenic diet, fasting, and so on, it's actually the hardest part is the start, because uh, you're, you're actually doing this thing called, uh, you're forcing the body to adapt its adaptation to this new strategy. Remember, these are potentially very powerful strategies. The ketogenic diet's not just trying to treat one or two things. It's trying to flip the whole body's metabolic state and, and uh, really uh, recharge those mitochondria at the core. But there's a lot of other stuff at the mitochondria cell systemic levels and the ketones are superfuels and so on. There's a lot going on. You don't just sort of start it and get better in a week. So basically that showed that, you know, maybe uh, people reap the most benefits in terms of quality of life in the latter six weeks of the trial. And of course, I always think with these trials, what if we had done it for 18 weeks or 24 weeks? Would we have seen even more improvements? Well, maybe, but... Well, I want to also that. point out uh, for our viewers looking at the graph that, you know, you start at the baseline at zero and you see with the ketogenic diet, it goes into the positive range, uh, a plus three, whereas ultimately with the usual diet, there's an actual decline in the QOL or quality of life. So the spread is impressive, but the fact that it in actually improves as opposed to decline to uh, declining with ketogenic diet, I think is pretty impressive. Yeah, and that's not surprising. Alzheimer's, this is Alzheimer's disease. This is one of the toughest disorders. I call it one of the toughest uh, three disorders that a person can be diagnosed with. It doesn't get better. It just slowly, relentlessly gets worse in terms of quality of life and function and cognition. So I, I'm glad you pointed that out. The, the next uh, graph I'd like to look at looks uh, at plotting the ADCS-ADL, Activities of Daily Living, over the 12-week uh, period and compares usual diet, which declines to minus 3, uh, to the intervention or the ketogenic diet, which actually uh, comes to a place of just above baseline. So maybe you can uh, tell us what the implications are of this graph. Yeah, that was a good one to, to see, too. You know, you always want to see a trend because... Uh, with these things. So that's why the six-week measurement was important. You have baseline six and 12. And what the uh, control diet showed, unsurprisingly, in Alzheimer's is a consistent decline in function. And that's what you see with this disorder. Um, whereas the ketogenic diet, it basically stayed the same, didn't it, for 12 weeks. And that's really interesting. It, it means that 
although it didn't improve function, it's, it may have stabilized it. And that is hugely exciting. I mean, people do not want to lose their function, the ability to drive, the ability to shop, the ability to shower uh, or go to the bathroom, Think basic things like that we all take for granted. And the fact that maybe in just a short period of time, 12 weeks, this strategy stabilized function is, uh, that to me was the most exciting finding in the study, the, the, the function part of it. Especially and the ADC, the ADCS ADL is again, a very, a quite a validated uh, test of, of function in Alzheimer's. Yeah, and I would like our viewers to think about what you just said and showed in the graph, that this is the context in the context that no pharmaceutical available to anyone on the planet can do this. There is no drug that can stabilize activities of daily living in the Alzheimer's patient, and yet this intervention by making a dietary change, fueling the brain, let's get down to the, you know, the brass tacks, enhancing mitochondrial function, whatever, uh, look what it did. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you said it said it well there. I want to. I'm I'm smiling right now because I'm thinking. I have to tell the story. I've told it before on our uh, Go previous for it. podcast. You know where I'm going? Uh, potentially about how, how, how we, we met. met. How we met, and I'll just recount the story. Um, a boat pulled up next to our boat. The, the gentleman on the boat was having troubles with his water system. I grabbed my tools, came on the boat to help him. This was in British Columbia. Yeah, in British Columbia, fix his water uh, purification system for his boat, his filter. I had extra filters. And he began telling me about his son, who is a neurologist studying something called the ketogenic diet. And he said to me, I probably, of course, wouldn't know what that was. Of course I wouldn't, because I'm a boat mechanic, right? <laughs> and then I That said, must have just been amazing for you to hear that. Oh, it was great because I said, you know, I've actually heard of the ketogenic diet. I'm, you know, I get up from the, my tools and everything. I said, if you look over in our boat, you see that? That's a bottle of MCT oil. And I'm not sure if your dad got what that meant, but then I think he called you. And then you jumped on the phone and you and I, uh, that's how we connected. That was, wow, three years ago. Yeah, he ago. emailed me and said, I met this guy who's interested in what you're doing. His name's Dave Perlmutter. And I just, <laughs> what? <laughs> that's, that's uh, and I, I, I told him, uh, you know, what some of the stuff you'd done. And uh, that was just very, one of those serendipitous things in life. You know, uh, I don't know, I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson said that uh, there's, you know, you just, uh, the best people you meet in life, the quote was something along the lines of the, the people you need to meet in life will appear in an unexpected time in an unexpected place. So I think that was it just one of those things. could have been any other doc where, that we could have been on. It wouldn't have happened. Another Ralph yeah. Waldo Emerson quote that comes to mind now that you mention it. Go and for it. And it applies to you. And it's, uh, it says, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Uh, that's yes, that's doing. a good one. I 100% know that one. Yeah, you are uh, blazing a trail, and, and so many of us are following it, following your work, and uh, very excited for you. So listen, thanks for spending time with us today. You're doing great, great stuff. stuff. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's always good to talk to you, Dave, and uh, thanks for uh, providing this venue for you know us to talk and so other people can maybe um, find out about these other ways to uh, tackle these really difficult disorders. There's a long path to forge yet, um, but hopefully there is a trail uh, being made and not just, you know, I'm just one person. There's many other great people in this area, such as yourself, and there's a lot of others. So I hope that, uh, you know, in 20 years, we actually have a combined medical and metabolic strategy to uh, approaching these things in medicine. And it would just be exciting if we could actually start not just treating symptoms, but healing. You bet. All right, Matt. Good to see you. We'll talk soon. Take care, Dave. Bye-bye.
Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? The use of the ketogenic diet as a treatment intervention with success in Alzheimer's disease. Again, this is the idea of of giving the brain an alternative uh, fuel source when the brain is ostensibly less likely to be able to utilize glucose for a number of reasons. Now we give the brain ketones and we saw the results today. Well, thank you for joining me here on The Empowering Neurologist. I'll be back soon. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Bye for now. Thank you.